who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Even hardened genre fans will find themselves whimpering at each new revelation. Publishers Weekly. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Infected is a marvel of gonzo in-your-face up-to-the-minute terror. Lincoln Child, New York Times bestselling author of Relic and the Pendergrass series. 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Realm presents Remade, Season 1, Episode 12. Cole settled the twisted piece of metal more firmly in his hand, whittling the length of wood he'd found growing near the Red Cross building. Over a week past, the group had set up their base of operations in a two-story building marked with the familiar sign, in hopes of finding precious medical equipment, although the machinery inside was incomprehensible. They'd argued about it, of course. May pointed out that the symbol might not even mean medicine here, depending on where here was. Cole wasn't sure, but it didn't seem to matter. His leg was already feeling much better, now that the long and arduous trek to the outermost streets of the city was over. Everyone had insisted on giving him a ground-floor room in the dormitory-like building next door, but he was sure he could manage the stairs. If only someone would believe him when he said so. But of course, they thought he was just being stubborn. He wasn't. He had almost a full range of motion back, and could put weight on the hurt leg again, even if he still needed a makeshift cane. He could walk without the aid of the splint Jingwei had built for him. How long ago was it? His sense of the time right after the accident was hazy, but he knew it had only been a couple of weeks at the most. Even if the damage hadn't been as bad as they'd feared, it seemed like the injury was healing quicker than it ought to. He'd put down animals for breaks like this. He chipped at the wood with deliberation. It wouldn't do to cut himself. The others already looked at him like he was useless a burden to be carried, not a resource to be used. He didn't like that. The work was the only thing that kept him from thinking too hard these days, and without it, he was pretty sure he'd go insane. The spear looked almost done, and he tested the point briefly before making a few minor adjustments. He wished he'd taken Holden and Saya's stories about killer caretakers, 
more seriously. He wished he'd made these spears sooner. He wished a lot of things, but that didn't make them so. It was useless to waste time when he had things to do, people to prove himself to. No sooner had he set the finished weapon on the pile than some of those people came out of the Red Cross building and walked over to him. One look at the expression of concern on Holden and Nevea's faces told him he wasn't going to be pleased with what they had to say. Inez just looked pissed, but that was a default for her. Over dinner last night, Gabe had observed that if you looked up resting bitch face in the dictionary, you'd find a picture of Inez. Cole couldn't help laughing, although he felt bad about it, remembering the incident now. Hey, said Holden. Mind if we sit down? Not at all, replied Cole. Maybe he was just being paranoid. How could you not be after everything that had happened? He saw the others relaxing with every hour that passed in safety within the city, but he just couldn't. Someone had to keep watch. Someone had to protect the others. Out of all of them, he was pretty certain he was the only one with experience looking after a family. Except for Umta, maybe. But Cole wasn't sure if he wanted to count her as one of them or not. She made him nervous. So is everybody about ready to go? He asked when no one spoke. He couldn't stand them staring at him like that. I've got two more spears to do. I know some of you think it's overkill, but it's better to have them and not need them than the other way around. I'll be glad to have a spear. From the relief on Holden's face, it was clear that he meant it. It's too quiet here. The two boys exchanged a look of understanding. Then Inez shrugged. I'm not sure what a spear would do against a giant killer robot, but it's cool that you're making them. Maybe we should stay here and make some more while the others look around, blurted Nevea. Her discomfort showed in her face. Extra spears might be a good idea. We need more supplies than just weapons, said Cole. The sooner we set to stockpiling food, the better. Who knows how long our rations will last? I've got some ideas on how to keep it fresh, too. We kept cattle mostly, but I've worked grain storage in the past. All the more reason for you to stay here while the rest of us go to forage, dude, said Holden. Get things set up. Cole set down the spear he was working on and tried to keep his expression neutral. These people were his friends, or as close as he was going to get to it under the circumstances. He couldn't just yell at them, no matter how much the trio of concerned faces made him want to. They could barely take care of themselves when they'd gotten here. How dare they treat him like a child? But that was an unchristian thought if he'd ever had one. He could almost imagine the expression on Bethany's face when he confessed it to her. Except that wouldn't happen. Couldn't happen. Not anymore. He took a deep breath and let it out. You don't want me to come forge with y'all, do you? His accent came out thicker the more upset he got, but no one else had seemed to notice. We don't think it's a good idea, Inez said bluntly. If something happens, you can't run. We need to map out the area before we set you loose. Cole scowled, picking up another length of wood and hacking at it with gusto. He wouldn't yell at a lady, but he didn't like her talking about him like he was a bad dog who needed to be leashed either. No offense, man. Holden hastened to add. If it weren't for your leg, we'd be asking you to lead a group. And I bet you'll be up and around in no time, with Nevea working double time to fix you up.
Nevaeh's cheeks flushed bright red at the compliment. Cole sighed. It wasn't fair to be angry. At least Holden and Nevaeh were trying to be nice about it. Besides, maybe they were right. He sure was feeling a lot better now that he'd had a few days of rest. Pushing it too fast wasn't going to get him back to his old self any quicker. Frankly, nothing could make things right. Not after what he'd lost. Yeah, well. He tried to brush off the sting of rejection. He'd always been one of the first to be picked for football at school. One of the first fellows the neighbors called on when they had heavy work to be done. He'd taken pride in that. He was a hard worker, just like his pap had been, and his grandpap before that. A man could take pride in a good, hard day's work, and he wanted that back so badly he could taste it. And if you hold off for a few minutes, I'll finish up these spears so you can each take one. I'll stay with you to keep you company, Nevea offered. I figure someone should keep watch over our stuff, right? And two heads are always better than one. He nodded because it was easier that way. But Cole would have given anything to be able to go out with the others. And he would have given everything to be able to go home. There had to be a way. Only he could find it. The day was hot for fall, and sweat trickled down Cole's forehead and stung his eyes. He took off his favorite tractor supply cap, wiped his face with the bandana he kept in his pocket, and put everything back in place. Only an hour of work in, and he was already sweating like a pig. He'd have to make time for a shower before dinner. Bethany was cooking, although he would have felt obligated to turn out nicely even if someone else had made the food. He'd been raised to show respect to whoever filled the table, whether it was his ma or the woman he intended to make his wife or somebody else. So he wasn't about to show up for dinner all smelly and sweat-stained under any circumstances. But pleasing Bethany made him all the more motivated to finish this chore in time to clean up. He surveyed the long stretch of pasture where a tall wooden fence had stood only a few days earlier. Mites had gotten at the old wood, and the whole structure had begun to sag over the past few weeks. One good freeze and it would have gone over, so he was putting up a new one. There was a lot of ground to cover before he could finish, and lollygagging wasn't going to help none. That's what his father would have said if he were here. But he was working in the barn, trying to squeeze a few more years out of the tractor, leaving Cole to build this fence on his own. He got to work. It was a sweaty, difficult job, but there wasn't much thinking to it. He'd already staked out the ground yesterday, filling in the old holes and marking the spot where each new one would go. He'd borrowed a post digger from Bethany's dad, which made the job much easier than doing it by hand, but it was still tough work. He dug the hole, placed the post, and filled the hole by hand. Dig, place, fill, dig, place, fill. Over and over again, until his muscles ached and his eyes stung. It felt great. As he worked, he eyed the pile of wood, wondering if he could snag an extra post or two. Colton had started toddling all over the place, and Bethany worried herself sick that he was going to topple down the stairs. Cole thought he might build a baby gate to set her mind at ease. The ones you could get at the store in town looked so flimsy, and Colton was strong for his size. He'd grow up to be a hard worker just like Cole. It looked like the boy had inherited his work ethic along with his name. It was the kind of thought that made him 
grin all goofy-like. If Bethany were here, she'd make fun of him for it. Then he spotted her truck, bumping down the dirt road toward him as if thinking about her had made her appear like magic. He went across the field to meet her with a big smile as she pulled to a stop and leaned out the open window to watch him approach, chin resting on her folded arms. Her blonde hair dangled out the window, glistening in the bright sun. Hey there, handsome, she said. I sure do like the looks of you. You got a girl? Yep, a real mean one too. She'd kick the ass of any lady who tried to put the moves on me. Sounds like a keeper. You got that right. He opened the door for her and lifted her down, giving her a long kiss. When he pulled back, it left him breathless. Having Colton so early had been hard, but he'd never regretted being with Bethany. Not for a second. Not even when she was in a bad mood and she had some doozies. What are you doing out here? He looked over her shoulder to see if Colton was squirming around in his car seat, but the passenger side of the pickup was empty. Everything okay? Sure is. I brought you a snack. She grabbed a paper bag from inside the truck and offered it to him. Corn muffins. Colton's still down for his nap, and my mom said she'd watch him for a minute. Thanks, he said through a mouth already stuffed with muffin. I shouldn't take a break. But the truck looked mighty inviting, and Bethany even more so. They didn't get much alone time these days, and all he had to do was throw a blanket down in the bed of the truck, and they could, she swatted him playfully on the arm. No, you shouldn't. If you want to be home in time for dinner. Besides, Buck and Tommy called. They're having a bonfire tonight, and they want you to come. Yeah, well, I'm busy. I got this fence to put up, and I want to build that gate for Colton, and I just got a lot to do. He meant it, too. His oldest buddies had supported him from day one when he and Bethany decided to keep the baby. They understood when he couldn't go out partying the way he used to, and now that Buck was engaged and raring to get married right after graduation, it had gotten even harder to make time for fun. But that would change. Their kids would grow up together, racing tractors and jumping out of haylofts and sneaking out at night to tip cows and drink beers, just like their parents had done in their wilder days. That kind of thing was worth waiting for. They all understood it. But not Bethany. She had that stubborn expression on her face again. You always have a lot to do, she said. And you always will. We can manage for just one night without you, baby. You know I love you, but get out of the damned house and go see your friends or I'll kick you out myself. You wouldn't dare, he said, grinning at her. Her tough facade faded under the weight of his humor. Okay, maybe not. After a long moment, she said, What if I trade you? You go out with your buddies tonight, and I'll give you a real date this weekend. Just the two of us, I promise. I'll wear that dress you got me for my birthday. He felt his face heating up as he thought about the last time she'd worn that dress. She looked good in it, even better out of it. What about Colton? He asked. My mom offered to watch him on Saturday night, she said. But only if I go out tonight? No offense, babe, but I'm starting to think you're trying to get rid of me. Am I that useless? He asked, half teasing. No, I can think of a few uses for a guy like you, she said, her eyes twinkling. Then what's up with you trying to shove me out the door? She shrugged. Maybe I think you work too hard. And it'll be my job to take care of you when I'm your wife. I'm just practicing is all. 
as soon as we graduate, he said. Are you sure we can't elope? Maybe, she said teasingly, giving him another long kiss that almost convinced him to scrap the whole plan and jump in the back of the truck anyway. I should get home to Colton. So you're going tonight, right? If it makes you happy, baby. She hopped into the truck. Then go off and have some fun with your friends. But don't be late, you know I'll worry. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on. Cole tried to send the others off to explore the city with a smile. After all, you never knew when the person you were talking to wasn't going to come back home again. He was determined to make every goodbye he said from here on out a pleasant one. But that proved to be more difficult than he expected. Who knew what they'd find? Caretakers? People? A way home? He could only hope for the best and plan for the worst. He spotted May standing off to one side, chewing her lip. Girls like May intimidated him. He didn't understand half the words that came out of their mouths, and he didn't like how that felt. But the worry in her dark eyes made him want to do something, to protect her, the way a man ought to. He ambled over to her. You nervous? He asked, even though the signs were obvious. I can recite the first 50 digits of pi, she said. But that's not exactly useful here, is it? What if we find something dangerous? I can't fight. You don't have to fight he said, thrusting a spear into her hands. If you see any caretakers, use this to hold them off until help gets to you. She stared at it like she'd never seen such a strange thing before, and then tried to give it back. I'm not the type. Save it for someone who knows what to do with it. Give mine to Amelia, she's itching to beat something up. 
Look, just take it with you. If you don't run into any trouble, you can scoff at me later, okay? I'll come with you, May, offered Gabe, his voice quiet. I'll take a couple of those spears, too. No, I got it. May took the weapon from Cole, awkwardly tucked it under one arm and hurried away like she was being chased. Gabe sighed and followed, forgetting about the spears altogether. Cole shook his head. Most of these kids had never built a fence. He had, and he'd also used the posts for target practice with his buddies when nobody was watching. He knew how dangerous a length of sharpened wood could be. He was prepared for a rough life on a level that most of these pampered kids weren't. Sure, they knew lots of things that made his head swim, but he was betting that most of them had never even thrown a punch before they'd come here, with a few exceptions. One of them picked that minute to pull him aside, out of earshot of the others. Loki. Cole knew what the others whispered about the stocky boy, but he wasn't worried about the rivet gun. Loki had proved his willingness to do what was necessary to protect the others. Sometimes those things were distasteful, and you avoided them when you could, but life was full of hard decisions. Sometimes you had to let the mother go in order to save the calf. You might cry afterward, but it didn't change the fact that it needed to be done. Loki cleared his throat diffidently. Hey, he said. I hear you're not coming along on the scouting expedition. Guess I'm not welcome. They think the leg will slow me down too much. But you don't? Cole's cheeks flushed as a wave of defensiveness washed over him, followed quickly by embarrassment. What was Loki trying to say, that he agreed with them? It works real good, look he said, bending the injured limb. Nevea sure worked some magic on it, observed Loki. I'm sorry you're not going. Frankly, I'd rather have you by my side than half of these little kids. Yeah, but there's no use starting a fight over it. I'll stay back today, if you're sure. But Loki didn't sound like he agreed at all. Want some more spears? I made a lot, said Cole, pointing to the pile. Feel free to take some if you think they'll be useful. Thanks. Loki replied, I might. No telling what we'll find out there. Haven't you heard? The city is safe. Both boys rolled their eyes at the naivete of the others. But what could you do? They wanted to believe they were safe, had to believe it so they could sleep at night. Cole couldn't take that away from them. Instead, he, Loki, Holden, and Gabe had taken turns sitting up at night since they'd come to the city, keeping watch over the others. It was the only thing they could do. It would have to be enough. Loki scowled. Listen, Cole, you don't have to stay here just because they tell you to. You're not a prisoner. I won't leave Nevaeh here alone. And she thinks that someone should stay here to watch over our stuff. I just wish it wasn't me. You and me both. I should go. Loki helped himself to another spear. But think about what I said. The outskirts to the north are completely unscouted, and it wouldn't be too far to walk. If you get cabin fever, go and check a few buildings out. You've got to be going nuts being hobbled like that. Cole nodded once and watched as the others separated into groups and walked away. He didn't envy Loki the job of keeping everyone else safe, but if anybody could do it, Loki was the guy. He obviously had some secrets, but didn't they all? After everyone else left, Cole bided his time to make sure they were well out of sight before he made his move. Loki had been right.
It was silly for him to sit around when his leg was in such good shape. Nevea was toying with the machinery in the Red Cross building when he entered, but she didn't seem to be making much progress. She'd figured out how to open the hatch set into the wall, releasing the stretcher inside. But no one had been brave enough to get on it because sometimes it decided to retract into the wall without warning. She had made a dummy out of unused backpacks and put it on the stretcher in an attempt to test the machine. Figure anything out yet? He asked. Not a thing, she said sadly. I can't even tell if it's medical equipment or not. Maybe May's right that the Red Cross means something totally different here than it does at home. She pushed a button and the stretcher retracted into the wall, the opaque door of the hatch closing behind it with a hiss. When I push the buttons, it sounds like something's going on in there, but I have no idea what. I can't see, and the dummy comes back out exactly the way it went in. Then she brightened visibly. But I did discover hair clippers. He put a hand up to the itchy scruff on his chin. He'd never worn facial hair before. By the time he'd been old enough to grow any, he'd already been dating Bethany. She could be persuasive when she wanted to, and she'd always hated beards. I can shave, he asked, perking up. Are you sure it's safe? They look like normal clippers to me, see? She opened another door above the hatch. He hadn't even noticed it in the forest of strange machinery littering the place. Set into the wall inside were a set of fairly normal-looking clippers, some kind of rotary cutter and a serrated electric saw. All three were attached to the wall by strong cords and reached only as far as the stretcher, but that would be far enough for their use. Nevea toyed with her knotted hair. I was thinking I'd cut mine first. That way, if something goes wrong, it'll happen to me. Uh-uh, no way. Cole folded his arms and stared her down. He would not let this tiny slip of a thing think that she had to protect him when it damn well ought to be the other way around. He still had some pride left. It's only fair. He cut her protest short before it could build up steam. Either I go first or neither of us go. She gave him a long, considering look before she replied. Well, I guess it won't hurt if they're just clippers, right? Shouldn't matter which one of us goes first so long as we both get haircuts. Sure, right. Once the decision was made, they moved quickly. Soon the dummy had been cleared off the stretcher, and Cole sat gingerly in its place, hoping it wouldn't retract suddenly. Nevea arranged him just so and pushed a button to activate the clippers. She pressed them to his skin tentatively, but they worked just like the clippers at home. They hummed against his head and he felt the tickle of hair falling to his shoulders. She trimmed his hair and he took over the clippers to do his face. When it was done, he lifted a hand to his chin. The smooth expanse made him feel a bit more like himself again. His hair might be a bit shorter than he usually preferred, but he wasn't about to complain. He hopped off the table, stumbling only slightly on his bad leg, and gestured for her to take his place. You sure you want me to do yours? He asked. This thing cuts pretty short. She grinned. I like mine as short as you wear yours. I got better things to do than mess around with my hair. Cut it all off already. Yes, ma'am. Her directions were easily followed, and soon the short curls of her hair fell to the floor to mingle with his. They spent a few minutes trying to pick up the hair, until Nevea improvised a broom out of one of Cole's spears and some large, stiff leaves. I feel so much better, said Nevea, running her hand over her head.
Isn't that silly? Cole smiled. Me too. I think I'll go walk around for a while. You want to come? Like around the building, you mean? No, I want to go look at the street to the north of us. It's not far, and we haven't explored it yet. We should be able to get out there and back before any of the others return. Nevea shook her head in what looked to Cole like automatic disapproval. No, not on that leg. I know you feel better, but doing too much too soon is a bad idea. Besides, what if somebody comes and takes our stuff? We don't have anything worth taking. But if a thief did show up, isn't that good? We're trying to look for people, after all. But- And I'm getting better so fast now. I don't know why, but I'm not going to sit around for nothing. You got to understand, Nev. If I don't get off my lazy ass and do something, I'm going to go insane. I know it's hard to be a patient, she began. Then help me. Just give me a chance. If we get halfway there and my leg's not able to support my weight, I'll call it off and we'll come back. I'm not going to make you carry me, I promise. After a moment, she nodded. Okay, but you'd better keep your promise. And did you just call me Nev? Amusement flitted across her bird-like features. I like giving nicknames. He paused and then snorted as memory overtook him. Could be worse. I called my girlfriend Beat. She hated it. Nevaeh let out a startled laugh. I'll consider myself lucky then. You should. Shall we? He offered his arm, and after a moment's consideration, she took it. For a moment, Cole felt a swell of guilt, because another woman should have been there. But this was different. Nevaeh was just his friend, and Bethany would have understood that he was just being a gentleman. Not that it mattered anymore. But Cole was the kind of guy who would stay true until the end, whenever or wherever it would come. The deserted streets felt eerie, but Cole was so happy to have something to do that he didn't much care. He took his time down the roadway, using one of his spears as a cane to help steady his balance. The leg felt pretty good, a little weak from disuse, but putting his full weight on it no longer sent shooting pains up into his hip. He was beginning to think that a little exercise was exactly what he'd needed. The haircut hadn't hurt either. Nevea paced at his side, keeping up with him easily. She had released his arm as soon as they were out the door, and now she carried one of the smaller spears, using it as a walking stick in imitation of his stride. It seemed to be working well, until she tripped over a curb and nearly fell on her face about two blocks out. Only his quick reflexes kept her from toppling over entirely. You okay? He asked, setting her right. She blushed. Yeah, I guess I should pay more attention to my own feet, huh? I was so busy watching you that I forgot to look where I was going. He snickered, and after a moment, she laughed too. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? You said it, not me. They continued on, and Cole pointed out the area that Loki had been talking about. The street in question didn't look much different from the one they'd left, with featureless buildings that offered little clue as to their contents. This city was strange. On the way in, he'd seen places like this that felt cold and sterile, standing right next to overgrown ruins. Well-tended buildings in the middle of burnt-out sections. Someone had to be taking care of the place, so where were they hiding? One building about halfway down the block was about twice the size of the others. Maybe that would be a good place to start. 
Man, this place gives me the creeps, Nevaeh observed as he led the way down the street. I can't disagree. Cole was tense and ready for trouble, his eyes scanning for movement, ears straining to catch the slightest sound. The situation reminded him of the time a mountain lion had wandered into his hometown. The damn thing walked right down the main street of Black Rock. It wasn't much of a main street. The tiny Arkansas town couldn't support too many businesses. But that didn't mean it was teeming with wildlife either. The cat made off with a bunch of livestock and generally made a nuisance of itself until something had to be done. Cole had been only seven, so he hadn't been allowed to go on the hunt. But now he imagined he knew how it had felt. He'd bagged plenty of deer and waterfowl before, but hunting another predator was a different thing entirely. You'd never know if you were still the hunter or if the tables had turned and you were the prey but just hadn't figured it out yet. Somehow, walking down this deserted, generic street made him think of that, even though the place looked nothing like home. What do you think happened? Asked Nevea in a hushed voice. I mean, if the city's operating, sort of, there have to be people somewhere, right? Yeah, he responded gruffly, trying to look in all directions at once. So why haven't they come out to talk to us? Her increasingly forceful tone took him aback. He couldn't recall hearing her raise her voice before this moment. I'm not taking anything for granted, and none of us should. It got us into trouble before. Who said I was taking anything for granted? I think you are. You don't want to talk about where we are or think about it or anything. I know you miss home, and I do too, sometimes. But we're here, and avoiding the topic isn't going to change it. He shook his head, pulling away from her. You don't understand. Well, how could I, when you shut me down every time I try to talk to you about it? They stopped in the middle of the street, turning to face each other by unspoken agreement. Nevea stared him down with a challenge in her dark eyes, and he found himself talking without really meaning to. He'd never been the wordy sort, and he stumbled over his thoughts as he tried to explain them. L look, I, I don't know what you want me to say. Am I angry and sad and, I, I don't know, grieving, maybe? Sure I am. I want to go home, but I don't know how. It doesn't matter to me if it's because of aliens or time travel machines or wizards and pointy hats or, or, or anything. We're lost, and the details don't matter to me as long as I figure out how to get home. Nothing else matters. He swallowed. His voice had gotten louder than he was comfortable with, and his accent was thick and heavy. He felt like punching something, not Nevaeh. He could never strike a woman, but something hard and unyielding, something that would hurt. It wouldn't make any difference. He was already hurting plenty. What happens here matters. Nevea's voice was quiet, but she didn't move to touch him like he expected. And I do, and everybody else here. I never knew your girlfriend, but imagine she'd be pretty pissed at you for selling yourself short. He let out an amused little huff. Actually, she'd be pissed at me for being alone with another girl. Nevaeh looked surprised, like she hadn't thought of herself as a threat to anybody's relationship before, and wasn't quite sure how to respond. Well, I'd just have to make friends with her then, 
so she'd know I'm not the kind of girl who breaks up soulmates, she said, finally. I bet she'd have liked that, he said. She didn't have much time for friends. Me either. Nevaeh cleared her throat awkwardly. It sounded like she wanted to cry, but her face was dry. Well, we walked all this way. Should we go inside one of these buildings, or should we stay out here fussing at each other? Inside, definitely. Lead the way, then. They decided on the biggest building on the block. First, Cole insisted that they walk around the exterior. Without any landscaping or any greenery whatsoever, it was easy enough to do. Cole didn't think he'd seen a single growing thing since they'd left the Red Cross. In some parts of the city, the wilderness crept in by slow inches. But around here, he was beginning to think that they were the only things alive. He hadn't even seen any bugs, and while it was a relief not to have to swat them away, he almost missed them. The building they'd picked was about the size of the grocery back home. But while the grocery had been plastered with sign upon sign advertising the latest sale or the newest beer, this place was a pristine white that practically glowed in the sun. The front was featureless, except for the door, which was a plain metallic bronze. The building was a huge contrast to the relatively normal-looking dormitory they were bunking in. This city had multiple personality disorder for sure. Around the sides of the building ran a row of windows, set so high up that Cole and Nevea couldn't look inside. For a moment, they debated lifting Nevea up onto Cole's shoulders to give it a try, but it didn't seem like a wise choice given his leg. Besides, it looked like the windows were tinted, so it wouldn't have done any good anyway. They'd just have to go inside. Nevea, I want you to stand over there while I open the door. He pointed to a spot well out of the line of attack, just in case something came flying out of the door. They still hadn't seen any caretakers, but maybe they were just hiding. Or maybe there was something else inside, something worse. She frowned. Why? I'm going to open the door. I want you out of the way, but keep your spear handy just in case. You're the injured one. I should open the door. Have you ever used a spear? Killed an animal? Gotten into a fight? Each of his questions was met with a tiny, reluctant shake of the head. No, I have. Two out of three, anyway. I've got the experience here. How's your leg? She demanded. A little tired, he admitted. But it feels good. It's not even shaky. You can feel it if you want. I, I mean, you can check it out. She blushed. No, I'm good. Open the door. He took a deep breath stealing himself for whatever might jump at him through the door. Whatever it was, it would not get to Nevea. He'd do what it took to make sure of it. Gripping his spear tightly, he flung the door open. Nothing happened except that he was hit in the face with a puff of stale air. He waited anyway, just in case the motion might alert something inside. But nothing rushed at them. Without taking his eyes from the doorway, he gestured for Nevea to follow, and then he went inside. It took a moment for his eyes to adjust to the dim light of the entryway. It was a small room, lit by a pair of recessed bulbs that emitted the weakest of illumination. Another door awaited them at the opposite end, so close he could almost touch it. The tiny room seemed silly, and although he wanted to throw open the door and stalk through it impatiently, he resisted the urge. 
Instead, he directed Nevea to stand in the safest spot, just as carefully as he had before. It was a good thing he did, too, because there was a caretaker waiting on the other side. It turned to look at him the moment the door opened and there was no time to waste. He charged forward, thankful that only a few steps separated him from the creature. His leg twanged in protest at the rapid movement, but held him up as he began to swing his spear in a wide arc, hoping to drive the creature backward. Behind him, he heard Nevea's frightened, breathless cry as she caught sight of what awaited them. The spear seemed fragile compared to the metallic bulk of the creature before him. It loomed over his already substantial six feet, and it didn't even move as the spear swung toward it. Probably didn't think the flimsy wooden stick presented any danger to it. Cole put every ounce of muscle he had behind the blow, hoping to prove it wrong. He missed. How was that possible? He swore he'd hit the thing. But a fight could do strange things to a man's vision. His was already rimmed in red as he thought of all the people the caretakers had hurt. They deserved vengeance, and he was going to give it to them. Still, the robot didn't move as Cole readied himself to try again. He stabbed at the creature this time, yelling furiously. The spear went through the caretaker. He didn't feel any resistance. It was like the robot wasn't there at all, even though he could see it, solid as anything, standing right in front of him. He could see where the spear disappeared into the metallic chest, but he couldn't feel the body. What the hell? He muttered. A shuffle behind him caught his attention, and he whirled to see Nevea creeping into the room from the antechamber. She held her hands up as his spear oriented on her. It's just me, she said hurriedly. Is that... It's not real, is it? I don't think so. My spear goes right through it. He stepped forward cautiously and put a hand out to touch the metallic carapace that covered the torso. His hand sank into the image, just as the spear had, and the only thing he felt was a slight tickle on his skin. I, I think it's a hologram, said Nevea. Ever watch Doctor Who? No, can't say that I have. He let out a bark of relieved laughter, looking up at the image before him with interest now that he knew it wasn't going to try to kill him. Cole hadn't gotten a good look at the caretakers before. He didn't remember much about his time on the station other than Umta's strange face and an uncomfortable tugging feeling, like when he'd gotten his wisdom teeth out. In the dentist's chair, he could sense that something bad was happening, only his senses were so numbed that he couldn't tell what. He hadn't liked it, but he supposed it was better than killer caretakers. Now that he knew it was a hologram, he couldn't be sure if it was built to scale. Were the real caretakers this tall? His memories of the night of the attack had holes the size of Arkansas in them. He remembered the running and chaos and fear, but he'd been too consumed by the pain of motion to take a good look at their assailants. That thing's giant, he said. It looks different than the others, observed Nevea. She didn't seem frightened now that she knew the thing wasn't real. Probably hadn't realized that a fake one here didn't mean the real thing wasn't lurking around the corner. Rather than disillusion her, he just kept watch, his spear at the ready. She took a long look at the image before them. See, this one has short arms. The ones from the camp had long arms, and the one on the train didn't have any arms at all. Her face went ashy when she talked about camp, and she looked over her shoulder nervously. 
Maybe she wasn't as naive as he thought. I'm keeping watch, he reassured her. But that means it's up to you to explore. It looks like there's more holograms. The two of them turned to survey the rest of the room. It was full of displays like the one they stood next to. Some of them showed people, but before he could get too excited about that, they flickered and changed. None of them were real. What the heck is this place? He murmured. Robot television? Maybe all the friendly robots come here to watch the shows? She tried to joke, but it fell flat. They don't look very entertaining. Reminds me of museum field trips in grade school. All those boring displays showing ancient history nobody cares about. She gripped his arm in excitement. Cole, that's it. This is a museum. Maybe we can finally figure out what's going on. Come on, let's check out the displays. Wait. He took her wrist before she could pull away. First, we gotta make sure it's safe. Anybody could be hiding in here and we wouldn't know it. How about we take a look around the room first, and then we can both check out the holograms? Fair enough. It didn't take long to clear the rest of the place. The building seemed smaller on the inside than it had from outside, but the displays sectioned the interior off into twisty aisles that made it difficult to tell, and Cole was too interested in its contents to pace it off. The caretaker wasn't the only holographic display. This place reminded him of endless museum field trips when he was a kid. He'd been bored back then, but now he couldn't wait to check out the projected images and see if they could learn something useful. Nevaeh ood and awed every time they saw another one, but Cole focused on his task as best he could. A real threat could be hiding among the fake ones, and they wouldn't know it until the last minute unless they made the effort. He ducked down to look under a fake image of a field of grain that made his heart ache. It looked so much like home. But instead of the fresh country air, all he smelled was the musty interior of the museum. The wheat rippled, but he couldn't hear anything except for Nevea's footsteps as she approached. It's safe, she asked, right? As safe as anything here is, he replied, still staring at the field. He could touch both edges of the image if he extended his arms all the way out to the side, but it still managed to feel expansive. His neighbor had been a crop farmer, wheat and soybeans mostly. He'd chased Bethany through those fields quite often when they were younger. Sometimes he'd even caught her. Okay, I'm going to look around. Just as Nevea began to walk away, the holographic field exploded into flame. Although he knew the fireball in the image wasn't real, he still let out a shocked gasp, throwing his hands over his face by instinct. Cole? Nevea whirled around, the worry on her face dissolving into horror as she saw the destruction depicted before them. Oh my God, she said. They watched in silence as the fire died and fast forward, leaving only the skeletal remains of a few plants behind to struggle for survival in the scorched earth. The bright blue sky above the plants dimmed, growing hazy with the smoke of unseen flames. The black tendrils grew larger and larger until they blotted out the sun. Cole didn't want to watch anymore. He turned away and would have stalked off if Nevea hadn't grabbed his arm. Is, is this real? Is that Earth? How am I supposed to know? He asked harshly. It looks like it, doesn't it? She released him then a flicker of annoyance crossing her face so quickly that he almost thought he'd imagined it. 
but he didn't much care. If it was Earth in these displays, if they were real, he didn't want to think about what it meant. Okay, she said. I'm going to go look at some of the other displays. Go ahead, he said, scowling after her. She walked off toward the entrance without a backward glance. Be careful, he shouted, but she didn't respond. Well, fine. It would do Nevaeh some good to be in a snit. She needed a little more backbone. He was really doing her a favor. He felt ashamed as he watched her retreating back, but couldn't bring himself to call after her and apologize. She'll get over it, he thought. She's too nice not to. Somehow that didn't make him feel any better. He wandered down the aisle. Another hologram showed a triangular ship sitting on a launch pad. It looked a lot like spaceships from the movies, only there were flags on it. One looked like the U.S. flag with a few extra stars. He thought some of the others were familiar, but history and politics had never been his strong suit. As he examined the ship, the air behind it began to shimmer with heat and crackle with blue arcs of electricity. Then the ship flung itself out of its harness, rising into the air with incredible speed. Within seconds, it was gone from sight. Then the image flickered and it was back on its pad again. Hey, Cole, called Nevea, conciliation in her tone. Come look at this. He followed the sound of her voice back to the caretaker display. It looked different now, and he gripped his spear more tightly as he approached. This caretaker was broader in the chest than the image had been before, and its long arms ended in wickedly sharp pincers. Its tiny head was dominated by a single, baleful red eye. The spikes on the shoulders and thick bands of metal across the chest gave it the impression of armor. And on the whole, Cole thought the image felt like a threat, like this caretaker had been built specifically to kill. No sooner had he taken a step forward than the image flickered and another caretaker sat in front of him. This one was squat, shorter than him, with delicately articulated limbs. The torso was ornamented with a bright red cross that instantly reminded him of the building where they'd made their base. The image flickered again. There are lots of them. Nevaeh stood at the wall next to the hologram, where a hand panel was built into the wall. She gestured to it. I must have seen 20, and I haven't repeated yet. When you press this, it changes the display to show all different kinds of caretakers. Built for different purposes? Cole mused. Sure looks like it. But what purposes, and who built them? Asked Nevaeh in frustration. Some of them seem pretty obvious. There's one that looks like it's built to burrow underground. The image flickered rapidly until it settled on another diminutive caretaker with a single drilling arm. But I can't tell for some of them. It flickered again and settled on what Cole had mentally labeled the warrior caretaker. Well, we know what that one's built to do he said gravely. Kill. Nevaeh didn't seem as frightened of it now. She seemed sad more than anything. Yeah, I remember. Cole's head swam. The bonfire had burnt down to embers long ago, but he and Buck and Tommy hadn't budged from their lawn chairs. There were still two beers in the 12-pack Tommy's older brother had bought for them, but he thought if he had any more, he'd probably puke. Come on, man, 
said Buck, offering him a can. You only had one. He shook his head. Nah, dude, you drink it. My head feels like shit. That don't make any sense at all, Cole, said Tommy. I've seen you pound seven beers in the time it's taken you to drink one. You're not an old man just yet, you know. The good-natured teasing made Cole grin. I'm not so sure about that myself. He yawned. I sure feel like one. Colton's cutting some teeth and barely slept at all this week, and I've been trying to let Bethany catch a few Z's. I'm so tired I've had a headache on and off all day. Damn, said Buck, shoving him on the shoulder. Why didn't you say so? Here I am running my mouth about stupid shit when we could have put you down for a nap. Cole snickered. I sure could use one, but I'm glad we did this anyway. It's been too long. Yeah. Tommy fixed him with one of his impish grins. The guy looked like trouble, but he had a heart of gold. We'll just thump you on the head once a month or so and drag you out of the house. It's cool. Bethany wouldn't like that, said Cole. The other two burst out into raucous laughter. It was her idea, man, said Tommy. She didn't tell you? She loves us, drawled Buck, because we're such good influences on you. So let's get you home before you fall asleep on your feet. Cole would have protested, but he felt like he could have fallen asleep right there in that lawn chair and rested soundly all night. He would have too, except that the last time he'd done it, he'd woken up with marker scrawled all over his face. So instead, he gave them both hugs, clapping them hard on the back. Life could be hard, and it sure as hell was exhausting, but at the end of the day, he felt pretty damn lucky. He climbed into the truck and took the time to put down the windows and turn the radio up. The five-mile drive over dark country roads wasn't going to be easy, and he needed to be as alert as possible. When he'd been younger and outright stupid, he'd driven it tipsy a couple of times. Nearly killed himself when a buck ran out into the road in front of him once, and that sure had scared him straight. He'd never told Bethany, though, too ashamed. With that in mind, he took his time. Speeding wasn't a good idea, especially considering how heavy his eyelids were. He just had to stay alert for a few more minutes and he'd be in his bed. Maybe Colton would sleep all night so he could get in a whole five hours of sack time all at once. And then he had the date with Beat to look forward to. He should probably get a haircut before so he looked nice. But bed first. Only a few more minutes of driving. But he was just so tired. And his eyes kept closing on their own. Cole and Nevea spent about an hour watching all the displays, but they brought up more questions than they answered. Massive buildings crumbled into rubble or were washed away by enormous waves of water. Strange ships alternately took off or fell from the sky. One display showed a caretaker painting a wall over and over again. But there was no way to tell if these things had really happened. And if so, when? Maybe this place was the robot's idea of entertainment. There was no way to tell for certain. Eventually, Cole tired of trying to puzzle things out, while Nevea still flitted from one display to another, convinced that she'd find a clue to their predicament if only she looked hard enough. One display of a drying riverbed showed what might have been another space station on a stalk, similar to the one they'd woken up on. And she'd been trying to figure out how to zoom or otherwise control the image like she had with the caretaker display. So far, no luck. Bored, 
Cole started looking at a display of a bunch of official-looking men and women arguing around a table. He was trying to figure out how the holograms worked. They had to be projected from underneath or behind. So he crawled around to the back of the solid-looking display to try to puzzle it out. To his surprise, he found a door set into the wall there, hidden by the hologram. A familiar hand panel sat next to it, its dim lights blinking in invitation. He knew Nevea would want to see this, and he almost called out to her before deciding against it. Better to see whether it was worth looking at first. He'd feel embarrassed if he called her to check out the bathroom. Come to think of it, he really hoped it was a bathroom. He opened the door and stepped inside. The room beyond was much smaller than the main room of the museum. Heck, it was even smaller than his bedroom back home, and that had barely fit a twin bed, chest of drawers, and a small desk for homework. After Colton had been born, he'd moved in with Bethany's family, although they were just across the street, so it hadn't been too far. Frankly, the room was a bit of a disappointment. Not a bathroom, unfortunately. And the more he thought about that, the more he needed to go. No mysterious holograms, no how to understand the mysterious holograms guidebook, which would have been really handy. He hadn't been to a museum in years, but he was pretty sure most of them had pamphlets to tell people what the hell they were looking at. But instead of any of those things, this room contained a chair, a built-in desk with a single hand panel set into its surface, and an inactive viewscreen. Everything was a sterile white that gleamed in the light from the inset bulbs on the ceiling. Then again, maybe this was some kind of television or fancy computer. Maybe he could find a news station that would explain what the hell was going on. Even seeing a human face would have been nice, because it had begun to feel like they were the last people on the world, though that seemed ridiculous. The world was... Well, he didn't know off the top of his head exactly how big it was, but it sure was huge. No way were they the only people left. It didn't make sense. He sat down, took a deep breath to prepare himself and put his hand to the panel. As he did, he braced himself for another letdown. The thing probably wouldn't work, or it would just show more inexplicable images, or it would turn out to be some fancy high-tech mirror. It would just be his luck to find some intact tech and have it turn out to be something completely useless. The screen flickered to life. A red line ran across the length of the screen, and as he watched, it began to creep up toward the top. Soon it disappeared off the top of the screen, only to be replaced with another red line at the bottom. Damn it, he growled. But before he could move his hand, the hand scanner flared into bright light and the screen changed again. Scanning? It read. He froze where he was, waiting to see what would happen. Scanning. The screen began to scroll with information, the words blurring past so quickly that he couldn't read them no matter how hard he tried. Couldn't even tell if it was in English. He tried poking at the screen with his free hand, just in case it worked like his old tablet used to. But that accomplished nothing. And he didn't want to take his hand off the scanner, because the whole thing might turn off so he just waited and hoped and felt like a fool for hoping. Finally, the screen froze again. It read, Cole Murray Kowalski, D.O.B. 8-24-1998. Parents, Murray Robert Kowalski and Amanda Faith Lerner Kowalski. Children, Colton Joseph Kowalski. Born 12-29-2015.
to Bethany Ann Lawyer. DOD 10 14 2016. October 14th. The night he'd gone out with Tommy and Buck. He must have died. Next thing he remembered was waking up on the space station, so he'd assumed that was probably the case. But somehow, seeing it written out like that was different. He was dead. All the people he'd come to know in the past few weeks, they must be dead too. Not just theoretically dead, dead dead. His senior picture filled the right half of the screen, but it barely caught his attention. Each name glowed bright blue, and he tapped on Bethany's with a shaking hand. The touchscreen worked this time, filling with more information, but Cole saw only one thing. Bethany's date of death. He sat there for a long time, staring at it. If this readout was true, she'd died at 55. The picture looked like her, only sad in the eyes, her hair graying but still long. He'd always liked her hair. This couldn't be real. He didn't want to believe it, but couldn't help himself. The machine knew who he was just by scanning his palm. This wasn't just some stupid prank, it had to be true no matter how much he wished it wasn't. She hadn't had any more children after Colton. No spouse on record that he could see. He imagined her after he was gone. How she would have stayed at her parents' farm so they could watch Colton while she went to school. She talked about becoming a nursing assistant after they graduated. Maybe she'd done that. Working at the little clinic right there in Black Rock. Watching her boy grow up without a father. Their boy. Cole steeled himself before reaching out to touch Colton's name. Once again, the screen flashed. But he already knew what he'd find. His boy was dead too, and there was no telling how long it had been, because he didn't know what date it was now. Colton looked a lot like him in the picture. They had the same chin, the same stubborn cowlick. He tried to imagine his baby living his life with kids of his own. He'd had three of them, according to the records. Tried to reconcile the man's face before him with his memories, but all he could see was a drooly, chubby-cheeked child. The grin with one tooth poking up from the bottom gum. The way Colton would grab onto Bethany's hair and refuse to let go. That boy had loved his mama and Cole had loved them both, and they were gone. He had to face the fact that they were lost for good, and nothing would ever bring them back. It seemed like he should cry, but he had no tears. He'd lost out on his life, so maybe he should have been angry instead, but he couldn't feel that either. It felt as if his insides had been scooped out, like he was an empty shell of the man he would have become. He'd lost everything, and now there was nothing left for him to give. He stood up, staring at the screen until it went black once again. Then he put his hand to the panel and up went Colton's record again. He couldn't bear to show it to Nevea, who would try to comfort him even if she knew it was useless. He didn't want comfort. Fleetingly, he thought about finding the people responsible for bringing him here, 
wherever here was, and beating the shit out of them. But even that failed to excite him. Numbly, he walked back through the door to the main area of the museum, climbing out from behind the hologram. A few moments later, Nevea called his name. Cole? You ready to go back? I'm starving. Yeah, I'm ready. He made for the exit where she already waited for him. There you are. I thought I'd lost you, she said. Oh, I was trying to figure out how the holograms worked. But no luck. Bummer. Still, I can't wait to show this place to everybody. They're going to flip the heck out, don't you think? She grinned. I'm glad you talked me into this, Cole. It would have been boring to sit around the Red Cross. If I'm going to be honest, I was getting a little claustrophobic stuck in there all the time. Oh. Sure. Finally, his malaise seemed to register with her, and she calmed her bouncy excitement, put her hand on his arm with a familiar expression of concern. Hey, you okay? She asked. He wanted to shake her off, to yell at her that his child was dead and nothing would be okay, and maybe Wesley had been right and they were in the future after all. But then what would happen? He'd have to tell the story over and over again, and he didn't think he could bear that. He imagined Nevea's face as she put her hand to the panel, only to find the death dates for everyone she'd ever loved. He couldn't be the one to do that to her. So he said, yeah, I'm fine. Based on her expression, she wasn't convinced. She arched a brow at him, folding her arms in a gesture that looked so much like Bethany's mock stern disapproval that he almost lost it right there. He clenched his teeth against the scream of fury and loss that strangled his throat. Is it your leg? She asked. After a moment, he nodded. Yeah, it's aching pretty badly. Maybe I've hit my limit. Hey, you did a lot of walking today. You want to sit down a little while before we head back? He shook his head quickly. Hell no. He wanted to get out of this place as soon as he could, and he didn't want to ever come back. Now the museum felt funereal. He thought about the fires and the tidal waves he'd seen in the holograms. Maybe they'd killed everyone, and nothing was left now on this world but robots. But it didn't explain what he was doing there, and Cole didn't really give a damn anyway. Answers had gotten him nothing but heartbreak, and he wasn't going looking for any more of them. Are you sure you don't need a rest? Asked Nevea. No, let's get out of here. You're right. Everybody else is going to flip out when they see all this. He forced a grin and led her from the room. Later that day, they brought everyone back to see the holograms. Cole kept his mask of excitement up as best as he could, but it was hard. He stationed himself where he could see the door to the computer room, but so far no one else had spotted it. Most of them were clustered around what he'd begun to think of as the caretaker catalog, trying to guess what the different models did. Every time they brought up a new model, Amelia pretended to stab it with one of the spears and everyone laughed. A few kids wandered through the rest of the displays, watching them at random. Sebastian kept watching the burning field, his face blank and fists clenched. Holden wandered the aisles, face drawn in thought. Only May watched every single one from start to finish, leaning toward them like she might better suck in every detail with close proximity. 
Gabe trailed behind her like a shadow she couldn't shake, but she studiously ignored him. For some reason, she spent a long time in front of the display of arguing business types. Cole couldn't figure out why, because it was the most boring of all the holograms. No robots or ships or mass destruction. The clothes weren't even that weird. Cole was about to ask what was up when Alex slipped toward the door to the computer room and reached toward the knob. There's nothing in there, said Cole hurriedly. And it smells bad in there too. Okay, thanks. Alex didn't even make eye contact. The guy just wanted to be left alone and Cole could understand that. There's a little nook back there if you're looking for somewhere quiet. He pointed toward the back of the building, far from the raucous tumult around the caretaker display. Thanks, repeated Alex softly. Gabe came to sit next to Cole, eyeing the computer room door. Cole's palms began to sweat. He wasn't the best liar, and he prayed to whoever was listening that something would happen to distract Gabe before he could pry. Anything would do, so long as it meant that Cole wouldn't need to go in there and see Colton's face again. He couldn't bear to cry in front of all these near strangers, not even Nevea, and she was the closest thing to a friend that he had here. But before Gabe could get a question out, May said, Oh my God. What? Gabe was on his feet in a flash, the door forgotten. What's wrong? They're speaking English. She thumbed toward the display. I read their lips, not word for word, but enough to get the gist of it. They're arguing about climate change. What does that mean? Asked Cole, looking from one stricken face to another. Is something wrong? Interjected Nevea, drawn by the ruckus. Is everything okay? May explained what she'd seen, taking them over to the display. Cole wasn't the best at lip reading, but even he could catch the basics of their conversation. It wasn't very interesting. What does that mean? He asked again. The fact that no one had answered the first time worried him. Gabe answered before May could. It means this is Earth, in all the displays. They paused to look at the burning field falling into a subdued silence. I don't understand, said Nevea in a small voice. Wesley was right, said May. This is the future. We need to tell the others. She squared her shoulders and marched in the direction of the group clustered around the caretaker display without even hesitating. Cole didn't know how she could be so calm. His stomach was tied in knots, and he knew that he should speak up about what he'd seen in the computer room. But he just couldn't make the words come. Couldn't admit out loud that they were all dead, and even if they figured out how they'd gotten to the future, there was no past for them to go back to. Are you okay? Asked Nevea. I feel like I've been punched in the stomach. Yeah. It shouldn't change anything, but... It does. She looked at the burning field and laced her arm through his. But this time Cole pulled away, ignoring her worried expression. That spot was Beats, and he vowed right then and there that no one would ever take her place. He would keep her alive in his heart, and he would never, ever speak of her death aloud, or of that room where he'd learned about it. If the others found it, he wasn't going to admit he'd been there and he sure as hell wasn't going to put his hand on that panel again. He wanted to remember Beat and Colton the way he'd known them, when they were his. It was the least he could do. 
Remade is a Realm original production. You're listening to Remade Season 1 by Carrie Harris. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with Season 2 of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remade is a Realm original production, created by Matthew Cody and written by Matthew Cody, Andrea Phillips, Carrie Harris, E.C. Myers, Kirsten White, and Gwenda Bond. Produced by Lydia Shama and executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Starring Greg Tremblay and Laurel Schroeder. Audio directed, produced, and sound designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Liz Castle. Find more shows like Remade by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.